Tanlo Falava, you're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific, Oau Okoroi, Hawkins. Coming up first. Violence against women, which all constitutes sexual harassment in the workplace, is all about power. Call for more comprehensive sexual education to help stop violence against women in the Pacific. So it was a totally uneven playing field, essentially with the U.S. holding all the cards. The U.S. compacts a free association and why they matter for the region. But we don't get to have this rich talanoa. We don't get to heal. We don't get to learn from past mistakes. And a new children's picture book depicts Samoa's independence journey. The Fiji Women's Rights Movement is reiterating calls for comprehensive sexual education in school curricula in Fiji and the Pacific to help stop violence against women. The movement, in partnership with the University of the Pacific this month, released a damning report on the high prevalence and impact of sexual harassment of female journalists in Fiji. Its executive director, Nalini Singh, says Fiji needs stronger commitment from employers to adopt and implement sexual harassment policies in their workplaces that are consistent with the Employment Relations Act. But she also says Pacific governments must stop shying away from introducing age-appropriate sexual education, especially given the disturbing trend of perpetrators of young victims of abuse being either family members or someone in a position of trust. Nalini Singh joins me now. Pula, and welcome on Pacific Waves. Let's start with your recent report. Tell us a little bit more about the findings. If I may say, Corinne, horrific findings, no? This particular survey um, done by the USB School of Journalism, they interviewed 42 respondents, um, with the youngest being 22 and the oldest being 51. And the average work experience of the 42 was around 8.3 years. And, you know, most of the respondents uh, sort of uh, said that they knew uh, what sexual harassment was, um, you know, about. And um, they said that the level of harassment at both the workplace and the reporting field is high. Uh, two-thirds of the respondents reported incidents, um, you know, occurring at least sometimes in terms of them doing their work. So we have to understand here, Karoi, that, you know, for women journalists, you know, their workplace is not just um, the radio stations or the, you know, newspaper houses or, you know, um, their offices. It actually, you know, moves when they move to do interviews. It's important to have that understanding in terms of um, when they say harassment, you know, that situation sort of changes. Um, in terms of the survey, um, the, it found that most, uh, you know, the common type of harassment they faced was verbal, but it was often gestural as well. There was physical harassment um, as well as uh, remarks, you know, that were passed around in terms of how they were dressed, um, you know, how they were looking. Um, and, of course, there, was, there were many crude and, you know, very sexual jokes only about 40% lodged complaints about the sexual harassment that had occurred in the workplace. And um, many felt um, very embarrassed to be doing so. Um, And of the cases that were reported, just over 50% resulted in a warning for the offenders and 17% resulted in termination, 12% uh, resulted in suspensions. Um, In terms of um, you know, uh, when when women were out in their reporting assignments, the most common sources of harassment, uh, um, you know, were, you know, 
experienced from um, businessmen, followed by politicians and community leaders. And, um, you know, that's astounding because this is exactly the kinds of things that we're saying in the women's movement, that violence against women, which all constitutes sexual harassment in the workplace, is all about power. You know, who holds the power and how do they use it? And often we see that those in power, such as uh, businessmen, politicians, community leaders, they are the ones who um, try and wield it over uh, women. Uh, and it results in situations like this. The uh, survey also found that, you know, while many media organizations have policies around, uh, you know, sexual harassment in the workplace, uh, two thirds of respondents um, have said that they have never had any trainings or any sessions in terms of understanding what those policies were about. And uh, more than half the respondents said that uh, their experience of sexual harassment had impacted them professionally and mentally. Um, and this is, this is the clincher here, Karoi, because, you know, 83% of the respondents, they said that they had experienced online harassment at one point or the other, and online harassment was emerging as a major threat because the offenders were largely anonymous. And um, others included uh, news sources or contacts, yeah, some government officials and political party affiliates. So, yes, po- you know, political and government stories you know, often leads to the highest level of um, online abuse, uh, followed by stories about race and ethnicity as well as religion. So most of the respondents um, you know, sort of self-censored themselves or avoided those topics. And uh, finally, most of the respondents said that their employers were not fully equipped to deal with online harassment. Today, we're starting a new multi-part Talanoa series on the relationship between the United States and the freely associated states of the Marshall Islands, the Federated States of Micronesia and Palau. In March this year, the United States President Joe Biden appointed Ambassador Joseph Yun as Special Presidential Envoy for Compact Negotiations. It's a significant appointment as the world superpower negotiates with three tiny Pacific Island states the next chapter of the funding arrangements under their respective compacts, which are essentially security and cooperation agreements. Joining me is our Marshall Islands correspondent, Giff Johnson. Kia ora, Jeff. So... Where did the compacts originate from and why? Okay, the compacts of free association with the three North Pacific countries, uh, Palau, the Federated States of Micronesia, and the Marshall Islands, they evolved out of the transition from a colonial status into uh, a, well, uh, uh, how do you say, self, uh, self-government independence, uh, which started developing back in the mid-1960s. And this was all part of the, I mean, we, the other Pacific countries were becoming independent of their colonial rulers in the early and mid-60s into the 70s. Um, and it was a very complicated process in the, in, for the Marshall Islands, the FSM, Micronesia, and Palau, because, you know, the United States had treated and always looked at what was then the the United Nations Trust Territory of the Pacific Islands. It was designated as a strategic trust by the UN, the only strategic trusteeship uh, of the 11 that were established after World War II. And as such, it meant the U.S. Uh, 
could use the islands for military purposes and had, you know, authority uh, beyond the usual trust territory uh, situations of other countries that were under under colonial rule at the after World War II. So anyway, long story short, the U.S. had these had the dual goals of maintaining the Micronesia area under its authority. Uh, security authority, and yet at the same time, appeasing the islands and the United Nations and the world community that it was allowing these islands to make a choice of self-determination. And that's a pretty complicated and contradictory (laughs) two policies, but that was sort of where it was at. And so the negotiations kind of stumbled along as the you know, the, the, they started in 1969 and went through all through the 70s as the Micronesian negotiators, uh, you know, were quite savvy and were able to use some leverage of the Cold War between the U.S. and the Soviet Union at the time. Uh, so they were able to leverage that and finally, you know, began, the, they settled on free association as the that what they wanted to do. Now, meantime, the Northern Marianas, which was at that time part of the Trust Territory of the Pacific Islands, they said, no, we're not going that route. We want Commonwealth status. And they opted out, had a referendum, and they are now, since 1976, a Commonwealth of the United States. And so that's why we refer to the Northern Marianas as the Commonwealth of the Northern Marianas. But ultimately, in the early and mid-80s, uh, compacts were co- completed for the three, what are now the three freely associated states. And for the, for example, for the Marshall, well, for the whole area, the key point for the United States was that it had what's called strategic denial. And that means the right to deny any other government, third party access to the in, this entire area, which is, has a footprint over the Pacific that, that's bigger than the continental U.S. So that's an essential ingredient in the compact still to this day. In about a fortnight on the 1st of June, Samoa will celebrate its 60th anniversary of independence. But the full story of this specific country's challenging self-determination journey is not one that has been made easily accessible to Samoan children in Samoa and around the world until now. Samoan educator and award-winning author Dalia Malayulu over the weekend released Grandpa's Siapo, a Pacifica children's picture book which highlights Samoa's historical ties with New Zealand, the impact of colonization, and which aims to promote cultural understanding for those who are not aware of Samoa's independence struggle. Dalia joins me now. Talo Falava, great to have you back on Pacific Waves. Now, this is quite a unique undertaking, isn't it? We have a lot of books dedicated to Pacific history, but not so many directly tailored for children. Yeah, that was uh, really important for us. Uh, exactly what you're saying. There's bits and pieces here and there, and you really do have to go and search for it. Um, and um, it was really important for us to create this story so that it is in one place and that it is created uh, by Pasifika for Pasifika. So that was also a driver as well. Now, tell us a bit more about the project itself. Something like this obviously has a lot of cultural currency, but also 
permissions, right, in terms of, of, of blessings for being able to do this kind of important work? Yes, definitely. So Grandpa Siapo, uh, the book itself was created by our Miller's book team, um, and we uh, publish Pasifika children's stories for Pasifika to help them to be seen, heard and valued. And um, it is really special because it is the first picture book in the world that tells the story of our Samoan history. Um, and it also received a personal blessing from uh, the amazing Fialoa Fualeafi Tamasese, who's uh, family connections um, and even connections to the Mao as well as um, almost Samoan royalty was given um, really in the hopes of ensuring that future generations are aware of our culture and our history as well. Um, so that's that was really, really amazing to be able to have her blessing um, of our story as well. I've had a look at the, the few excerpts that you've, you've provided. I love the timeline. I think that that's a really great yeah. way of illustrating things for children. I, I myself love, love timelines. So I really love the graphics. And um, it's, it's a bit of a different take from your previous books am I right in saying that? Yeah so Grandpa Siapo is part of our Mila's Mayanga Nu'u series and these series of picture books are specifically created to develop cultural understanding so yes there's language components uh, as part of these stories but um, the emphasis is really on developing understanding so that we can make better connections with our culture for our Pasifika to Meiti, but also for non-Pasifika to understand uh, us and where we come from and what we bring um, to the table and in the spaces that we fill. So uh, Grandpa Siapo is part of that collection. So ensuring that there was a book um, about our Samoan history was, was quite critical. Um, I was, in my time as a teacher in the classroom, I would talk to my Samoan students to see if they actually knew about our Samoan forefathers or um, the Mao, as well as just the journey and the real challenge and struggles that our people face to ensure that, you know, for Samoa, the Samoan way of life, our language, our culture thrives and actually uh, survives today for us. So a lot of our children, Pasifika children, unfortunately don't even know our history, which is quite sad. So making sure that we had this type of book to share uh, with our Tamaiti as well as educators and families was really, really important. That's Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, Apple or iHeartRadio. Until next time, more mea.